Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Ajit George, is the Director of Operations at Shanti Bhavan, which is a school in the Tamil Nadu state of southern India that serves children from the Dalit community. These are some of the poorest children in the country. The Dalits were sometimes referred to as the, quote, untouchables in India's now illegal caste system. Still, to this day, systematic inequality has kept many members of this community in extreme poverty. Shanti Bhavan seeks to break that cycle by offering a high-quality education and other life skills to its students. And for its successes to that end, it has begun to attract a great deal of attention. Last year, a documentary on Netflix called Daughters of Destiny profiled some young girls at the school and offered some insights into Shanti Bhavan's unique strategy for breaking poverty cycles. The school was founded by Ajit's father, the Indian-American businessman Abraham George, in 1997, and Ajit describes how his father decided to start the school and how this fits into a broader theory of change for upending and disrupting India's caste system. We kick off with a discussion of that caste system, then have a broader conversation about the challenges in India's education system and the unique approach that Shanti Bhavan takes to upend cycles of poverty. It's a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And I will post a link to Daughters of Destiny and the Shanti Bhavan website on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Ajit George. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It essentially breaks down people into different castes, uh, the highest being the Brahmins, and the, which are the sort of the, the religious caste or the, the sages and the wise men. Um, then the next would be the Kshatriya, which are sort of the kings and leaders. And then there's the merchants and so on. At, at the very end, at the bottom, uh, there's multiple different castes that kind of fall into uh, different backward classes or backward castes, but the very bottom is the um, the Dalit or the untouchable caste. And, you know, the classes and castes, and sometimes they're called scheduled tribes. There's a bunch of different names of different categories, but all of them at the very bottom are often viewed by larger society as um, somehow tainted or polluted or otherwise, um, you know, uh, you know, beneath the others. And so they are treated inferiorly both uh, by social status, but also 
um, they often face a lot of economic uh, deprivation and hardship. And the caste system was formally abolished by the government years ago, yet it still remains a potent sort of social force. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, and, and so much so that it even bleeds into religions that don't have caste. So um, while the caste system has been abolished, um, it still is running and active, um, you know, more so in rural areas than in the urban cities. But the urban cities have a more subtle form of discrimination. Um, and it, you can often tell somebody's caste or their background by their last name or other markers, um, you know, sometimes um, last names or family uh, backgrounds are often the easiest way to determine who is of what caste. But it infiltrates even like, for instance, the Christian faith and, and the Muslim faith. Uh, there are people uh, from the Dalit caste or the uh, lowest caste that, that convert to a different religion sort of to escape, um, you know, their plight. But um, somehow or the other, you know, even members of that faith, uh, the Christians or, or, or Hindus or Buddhists, will still discriminate based off of caste. Um, they, they may know that they're Christian, but they'll almost be like Christian uh, untouchables. Um, so it's really permeated. You know, it's, been, it's a system that's been around for thousands of years, so it's really permeated every level of, of society and, and, sub, and the consciousness of the, of the nation. Well, can you just give a, a couple of examples of how this kind of discrimination might manifest itself in like either A, everyday life, or B, more like broadly systemic issues? Yeah, um, on everyday life, it infiltrates um, by, uh, you know, in the rural villages, which about 700 million, um, you know, members of Indian society live in. So it's actually the majority are living in rural areas. Um, it is, uh, you know, something like not being able to worship at the same temple or drink from the same, uh, you know, well or uh, live in the same part of the village. They're often called Dalit or untouchable colonies, and those colonies are a segregated part of that village where the lowest caste members may live. And so um, those are kind of the, um, the, the very stark and, and, and intense ways that uh, segregation happens. Uh, and it can often happen in jobs as well. Um, you know, the higher paying jobs and the more white uh, collar professional jobs are often um, hard to access for members of the Dalit caste. And then there's a multiple reasons for that. Often members of the Dalit caste don't often have the same level of access to education or economic advantages or, or loans or uh, other opportunities. And so it impacts them in, in different ways. Um, but uh, you will see it, um, you know, you'll see caste-based violence uh, often, uh, especially when it comes to something like marriages. You know, if a, if a lower caste and a higher caste uh, you know, man and woman got married, it's quite possible one of them might be killed because of it. Hmm. Um, so your school prepares uh, Dalit class people, uh, for women in particular, for uh, working class, for, uh, pardon me, for, for white collar uh, jobs. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We're, uh, we're a co-ed school, though the Netflix series Daughters of Destiny really did focus on five young women from the organization. Um, but we're a co-ed program, uh, and 95% of all of the um, you know, student body are from the Dalit or other untouchable, the Dalit or other backward classes. Um, and the idea is um, that by uh, a high-quality education, as well as uh, intense training and soft skills. And what I mean by soft skills, I mean uh, presentation skills, um, public speaking, uh, interpersonal skills, um, debate, um, you know, as well as being well-rounded in terms of athletics and music and the arts. Uh, this combination 
will elevate a child from the poorest circumstances to um, the very highest levels of society. Uh, we have felt and having observed other NGOs at work and um, you know governmental programs at work that uh, most of the systems of intervention have not been successful. Uh, to give you an example, there are 18 villages around Shanti Bhavan, uh, our school, and um, you know uh, a lot of the uh, children come from those villages or other neighboring areas. Uh, we did a survey. We've done multiple surveys year after year about. Um, kind of where do the, ch the parents come from and what are their backgrounds? What we found was the majority of them have actually some level of basic literacy or even uh, upward to, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, sometimes ninth grade education. And yet they're exactly where their, their parents or their grandparents were. You know, they didn't get any further. And so our, our goal was to um, not simply give education, but completely uplift uh, each child uh, that go enters into our program. Uh, out of poverty, um, out of social discrimination as well, and uh, elevate them into uh, the opportunity for white collar professional jobs. And and the idea, or I'd say the the reason that um, you know even this basic education is not sufficient to lift them out of extreme poverty is probably twofold, right? One that again for the systemic uh, discrimination and historic reasons, um, they've been sort of socially and, and economically excluded, but also that this education is, is just probably not that great to start with. So like, I guess my question is, um, if the individuals, the, the boys and girls that enter your school do not enter your school, what options exist for them educationally? Sure. Um, most of the, um, children that are come from the same villages, the same circumstances, have access only to uh, government schools, um, and the dropout rate's pretty high, especially after like sixth or seventh grade, especially for girls. Um, and uh, you know, there are also there are other NGOs, but some of those NGOs seem to focus only on basic literacy or primary, secondary education, and uh, neither option has really provided an avenue for escape for these uh, young men and women. Um, for us, uh, you know, the goal is uh, that every child enters our program at the age of four at preschool and continues on until they finish 12th grade. Um, we also give we also put them through the toughest um, and most uh, recognized um, board exams, the ICSC and ISC exams, uh, which are national exams in India, and um, to ensure that they have uh, a opportunities to the very best colleges in India. Once they graduate from 12th standard, we also provide for their college education. So we, we've given sponsorships and scholarships for college and support them through um, their living needs as well. Um, mixed with, uh, as I said, those soft skills, and, and the soft skills I really want to emphasize, Mark, because um, one of the things we've noticed is that uh, children with, with basic education or even a decent education, unless they have some level of soft skills, it's been very hard for them to compete. Um, uh, for those top positions at, at colleges, but especially when they go on to, um, you know, the workplace. So our kids have all graduated uh, from college and gone on to, um, to Fortune 500 companies like Amazon or Mercedes-Benz, Goldman Sachs, and so on, uh, without exception. Uh, really, really uh, top-level companies at good jobs. That would not have been possible without the emphasis on the soft skills um, because there is no modeling for them at home, right? They don't have role models to look to to teach them like you and I might have had within our own households um, or within our peer groups. And the two two groups that you often learn social skills or soft skills are from you know family members or peer groups. And uh, our student body comes from such a community that that is impossible. 
And so we really have put a strong emphasis um, on that alongside uh, a strong academic backup, backbone. So, so can you tell a bit about the story of the origin of the school, which I, I know was, was founded by your father. Co- can you just, I guess, describe what your father's journey was from India to the United States and then back to India to, to found the school? Yeah, sure. My father, my father has lived like multiple lives. Uh, he was um, a young military officer, uh, and um, you know that was really, I think, the genesis of his thought on inequality, uh, income inequality, and social inequality that he saw while he traveled the country. Um, when he finished his uh, stint with the Indian Army, he uh, came over to the United States and he did his uh, MBA and his PhD. At NYU Stern, and then um, well, how, how did he how did he make that 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 sort of journal? I mean, presumably, obviously, it wasn't wasn't born into like a lower caste class, sounds like no. sort of like a middle class lifestyle. But that seems to have been like a it's a, a profound sort of leap to make. It is, uh, and I, I attribute that to my grandmother. My, my I've been very lucky to have uh, very strong role models in my family, and so my grandmother was one of the first women in India to get a PhD in physics, um, and she got recruited by NASA and came over and. Mm. Um, when she came over, you know, a few years later, she brought over my father and the rest of the family. Oh, okay. um, and so, um, you know, it was still a tough road for him. He didn't have a lot of money when he first came over. You know, neither did she. But um, they, you know, my father was able to make a life alongside, um, you know, his family members and built up a company. Um, was, um, um, But that was a combination of both education, very strong education and very strong soft skills and, and leadership skills. And uh that company became successful. Um, he always had a sense of civic and social responsibility, something that it was ingrained at, with me at a young age, uh, the sense of giving back. And um, I can remember, you know, even as a young child, he would do that in various ways. But once it was time for him to sell the company uh, and he had a lot of money at his disposal, he thought he was going to do some pretty major things. Um, and he decided that his dollar would go a lot further in India. Most of his social work and charitable work had been done in the U.S. until then. But he thought he could affect more change in India, which he thought was still uh, in dire need of uh, a lot of reform. Um, and so he embarked on multiple projects, including the largest testing and treatment of lead poisoning ever done in the world. Uh, and it forced uh, the Indian government to uh, introduce unleaded gasoline because the findings were hmm. pretty scary. Um, but uh, again, Sean- I mean, you know, as you point out, it seems there the common thread here is that, you know, lead poisoning and often often impacts the sort of mental facilities of, of children. That's correct. That's true. In fact, that is exactly what the findings were that were that the findings of that study showed that uh, 51% of all children under the age of 12 that lived in urban areas had unacceptable levels of lead. Um, that was a national health crisis. And so uh, the the new legislation that that the, the findings, you know, introduced uh, really changed the nation. Uh, but Shanti Bhavan was really the, his road to to um, a more equitable society. And and so, what, what like how did the idea come to form a school targeting this specific population? Was there like an um, aha moment? Yeah, I think it. Well, I think it'd been stewing for a while, and and a family friend, you know, had also spoken to him about some of the needs that she saw. Um, but I think he looked to his own education and his own background. You know, uh, an upper middle class family, a background from India. Um, you know. His two sons also had a, were well educated in the United States. He had a strong education 
um, but also strong soft skills and social skills. And, and as I think both an entrepreneur and a businessman, he realized um, that the avenue to escaping any situation can often be, um, you know, money, being successful in, in a professional job. Uh, and so he thought um, if he could give these children um, an education equal to a middle class or an upper class child, uh, and the same kind of background and same kind of training uh, with the strong social skills, they could excel and they could uh, elevate themselves, but not only themselves, but their family members. Uh, each child of Shanti Bhavan that's graduated um, and is working is uh, now the sole or primary breadwinner of their entire family. And so at the age of 21, they suddenly take on uh, family debts uh, you know, that they've accrued for, for a couple generations. There's a lot of illicit lending in that community. Um, they are take care of healthcare bills and food and lodging. Um, they pay for dowries for siblings. They pay for education for siblings. They take on a huge load at a young age, and they are carrying their entire families forward uh, very quickly. Has, uh, it's pretty powerful. Has the school been open long enough to sort of measure some of those longer-term effects uh, in terms of sort of graduates having uh, you know, contributed financially to their house's well-being. Like, are, is there any, like, I mean, is there, has it been around long enough for you to be able to, like, cite data? Yeah, we've been around for 20 years. This is our 20th anniversary, actually. And so um, we've had... So know, the oldest five, graduates are, what, probably about 25 by this point? That's correct. Yeah, we, okay. we started the first class at five, so the uh, at five years old. Normally, the kids come in at four, but we, we took in two groups at the same time, and four-year-olds and five-year-olds. And so um, the oldest class are five years, uh, five, 25 years old. And um, they range across a lot of different professions, from the legal profession to the medical profession to um, uh, engineering and sciences and business professions. But they are all doing extremely well. Um, their uh, salaries are in the uh, middle class, upper middle class range uh, at a young age, and they are, without exception, the either the sole or primary breadwinner of their entire family. So their our average is each child that has graduated is responsible for five other people uh, beyond themselves, and so that's a pretty strong impact, um, especially when you consider that they're you know permanently have broken that cycle of poverty, but then now they're elevating other members of their family as well. So can you? Um maybe like walk me through walk walk listeners through a couple stories uh, perhaps that are either told in in the documentary or that you have seen yourself of you know individual students and how they've changed and and sort of you know potentially also discuss you know what graduates are are up to now and how they're making a difference in in their neighborhood but like kind of like make it granular like tell us a story yeah. of your students yeah Sure, sure. I, so um, one young lady that I, that I really like setting is because it was so so strong, so fast uh, the the impact. Um, she um, her father, uh, you know, is, her father was an auto rickshaw driver. Is sort of like um, uh, you know, if you, for, your, for your listeners that might not be familiar, an auto rickshaw is a three vehicle, low end um, taxi. Uh, it's a very the profession is usually considered very low end, um, and so. Uh, he didn't make much money. Um, he uh, is an alcoholic, and so uh, he ended up damaging his spine due to alcohol-related, um, you know, accident, uh, mm -hmm. and could no longer work. Uh, her mother uh, is ill, and so she also can no longer work. She's got a younger brother as well, um, and so upon graduating from college, she immediately got a job at Amazon. 
Um, she became responsible for the entire household at 21. And uh, she is paying back historic uh, loans that her grandparents had accumulated as well. Um, and so these are, you know, debts for two generations or a generation above. And she's paying her father's health care bills. Um, but he's also he's been in and out of uh, rehab or the hospital uh, not really rehab, more like just clinics because of alcoholism, um, something like 20 times in the last six months. So she's also covering all of those costs as well. She's covering all of the household costs, the food, electricity, um, lodging, everything. Um, and they had been kicked out again and again from whatever little place they had because of debts and because of threats of violence, um, because of the moneylender. She's paying for her younger brother's education as well. And, um, she does all the cooking and cleaning because she's the only girl in the house. Well, well, can, can, can I ask, I mean, does this example sort of makes me want to or wonder if there is then some sort of like resistance within some of the communities uh, in from which your, your students are, are drawn to, um, to, to you, to your school for upending what are sort of longstanding social structures. I mean, having like a 21 year old woman suddenly be like the head of household seems to be sort of a challenging to perhaps, you know, more traditional patriarchal structures. Yeah, certainly that has certainly happened, um, in, in some cases, mostly not from the families themselves. Um, there's been some resistance in the early years from the families and still conversations with the families. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges often is um, families want their daughters to get married very early. And so they have a hard time understanding why their, their daughter has to go to college. or why that, it's it, Because getting married early is a, a good way to make some money for them. Yeah. Well, there's a, they, it's just a sort of the tradition of it. it mm -hmm. you, you, you marry off your daughter um, and you often pay a dowry. So you're not really earning. You're sort of the opposite. But they, mm -hmm. they're just the norm is that your daughter is supposed to get married at like mm -hmm. 15 or 16. Um so there's often some resistance within the families, um, but they've gotten, it's interesting. It's a combination. We do a lot. So our work is pretty complicated. On one end, we look like a school, but on a, on a much more deep level, we are working within the community uh, very robustly. So we have constant conversations with the families and the parents and we tell them, hey, don't marry off your daughter at 15 and 16, you know, believe in her, invest in her. And these are not one off conversations. These are very regular conversations um, so that the parents are hearing this repeated message from the administration and our team. And they're they're faced with uh, pretty, um, you know, pretty strong, uh, savvy young women as daughters uh, who are willing to stand up for their own rights, uh, both you know, their body as well as their own agency in life, their choices. Um, and these young women are uh, smart enough to make good decisions for the family. So the parents end up trusting the daughters in the long run. It's not an easy road. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there. Um, the larger community sometimes pushes back, sure. And those parents sometimes get um, face some some pressures from their their neighbors or their, um, their community as a whole. But um, on the other hand, there's a lot of awe around these kids. These kids start, stand out so starkly, um, you know, compared their peers, that there's a great amount of respect for what these young men and women have accomplished. And so they're given some leeway because of their accomplishments. 
You know, so so I have a uh, a soon to be kindergartner next year, and we're we're touring schools. I just uh, came back from touring like a local charter school here, and you know, the first question everyone asks is, you know, what are the chances my kid will get in? Like, what's what's the application process like? What's the selection process like? And that's sort of top on my mind as as a parent, and I have to imagine it's on the top of of the minds of many of the parents and the communities that that you're working in. So. And I also have to imagine that the um, you know uh, demand uh, for students uh, outstrips your ability to uh, of, of seats available in the class. So, like, what, like, how do you decide who gets to to uh, to to get a seat in this class and have that sort of life changing you know experience? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Mark. Um, you know, we have about three hundred applicants for every twenty four seats. Hmm. So uh, it's it's. Um, it's very tough. And you you're like choosing it's, lottery winners here. I mean, it, it is. In, in it's a very way. much. In fact, that's exactly the term sometimes the kids will use. They feel like they've won the lottery, um, you know, and they don't realize that as a young age. But as an adult, they, they've talked about their, their experiences. Shanti Bhavanan said, you know, they felt like they won the lottery to be able to go to the school. Um, and, and you hear a lot of heartbreaking stories. There are no easy stories in the interview process. And I've sat through a lot of the interviews. Um you know, our, our basic criteria is this. Uh, you have to be under the poverty line, which is under $2 U.S. Uh, a day. Um, so it's pretty pretty poor. Uh, you, We give um, preferences to single mother and single parent households. And we believe that single mother and single parent households are more invested in the child's welfare and their well-being, are more likely to keep the child in the program, um, and more likely to get some benefit out of it. You know, they have less uh, burden on themselves and maybe um, they might be able to work if their child, uh, their child is in school. Uh, beyond that, we also try to be cognizant of whether the family seems like they are going to uproot the child at age 12 or age 13 and try to put them to work or, or to marry them off. That's hard to predict, but we do have long conversations with the parents in the interview process about that. Um, whether they seem like they're ready to move out of the area or, you know, the, the children come from all three neighboring states. So uh, sometimes as far as a day away by travel, um, those are the primary ways we, we uh, you know, we, we are criteria for uh, admission per child. But that isn't, um, you know, that's, that still only narrows it down by a certain percentage. Um, we do household visits to ensure they genuinely are in poverty. We do a few other things like that, but it, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of great and deserving kids that we have to turn away uh, because we don't have enough uh, spots and seats at the school. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's our 20th anniversary and, and the Netflix series has been a great platform to to reach a broader audience. So we're in the process of um, raising funds for a second school. And I hope that will uh, allow our impact to m multiply, to reach more communities, but also to affect um, a stronger societal change. Because the way I look at the program is, it's much more than a, a poverty alleviation program or um, an education program. One of the core co components of the program is that we instill in the children a strong sense of social and civic responsibility. So while we want them to help their families, and I think in the midterm they're doing that, right? At 24, 25, they're the primary breadwinners, sole breadwinners. But 35, 40, um, you know, maybe 45, hopefully they'll make some strong impact in society. Um, they know that everything they've gotten uh, from the age of four onwards was given to them by somebody, a stranger, somebody who cared enough to donate to support the school, support the organization. Um, they also know that they don't need to return that money to that individual. That person doesn't need it. 
but they do, we do tell them you do need to go out and help others. Others in need, somebody is a stranger, somebody that hasn't been helped and, and make an impact. Um, as they coalesce into groups and they've started an alumni association uh, for all the working graduates, they started talking about lar larger societal and structural problems within Indian society. And while there's only a small amount of them right now, 50 graduates who are working, another 50 who are in college, uh, as the years are, you know, progress, there'll be more of them and there'll be more of them in higher positions because they are entered all different professions. So I see our graduates entering the political uh, profession. I see them um, in leadership positions in corporations. I see them building companies together because they all grew up together since the age of four. And, and a lot of them have an entrepreneurial brand. Um, I see a second school feeding into that and the alumni of those two schools working together, maybe a third school. And so I see it as really uh, a societal change making machine, like a, the, the ability to impact um, the course of a nation. And it won't happen easily. It won't happen tomorrow. But it, everything about Shanti Bhavan is a long-term program. And we, we think about um, progress in decades, not in days or years. Uh, and so I'm pretty excited for the future because I see the kids really, really taking on that mantle. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, in, the, in the series itself, if you've seen it, or if your viewers have seen it, uh, there's a young lady by uh, the name of Karthika. Um, she's still in law school when she takes on the panchayat elders of her community, uh, which is a deeply depressed and, and strongly marginalized community, on legal issues about land rights. Um, and she wins. Uh, she forces them uh, to back down about um, ownership of the land and, and kind of the rights of the of the the land uh, dwellers who didn't have possession of the land by, by written law, but had it really by living there for, for generations. Um, she's driven to make change within her community and has already impacted her community. Um, you know, and she was, I think, 22 when she did that. Uh, I see a lot more Karthikas within our ranks, and I see kids strongly motivated to make deep changes within the community, within the society. So that's interesting. Your your answer sort of preempted what was going to be my last question about sort of the scalability of this kind of of enterprise. You know, it it almost reminds me in a way of those like Jeffrey Sachs Millennium Villages, which some listeners might be uh, familiar with, which is this idea that if you can invest a lot in a few villages, make those models uh, that. Um, these sort of villages that that exist in 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 poverty, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, could you know flourish and sort of be an example and then sort of spread their their wealth and 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 their ideas around. And it, it worked it sort of in a village by village uh, way, but um, it did not have a kind of longer term you know societal impact uh, as well. And so I guess my my question, which you sort of already answered, was like, how do you scale this project? How do you sort of replicate this on sort of an exponential level as opposed to just building you know another school at a time? Yeah, I think um, on an exponential, I mean, so, yes, I, I think our, there's two parts of that. I, I do see us uh, building multiple schools, though we would do it slowly because, um, you know, keeping the core values and keeping the um, the drive for excellence. One of our one of our key components is that we don't compromise on the quality that we give to the kids or our expectations from the kids. Um, I think there's often this sense that children from the poor uh, only deserve X amount of, of support. Um, I, I think as a society, as, as a people, we have an inborn prejudice about the poor and that the poor, there's this sort of glass ceiling in our own minds about what they should have and what they can actually achieve. Um, so Shanti Bhavan kind of disrupts that all that, all the entire thinking. Um, if you visit the school, it's, it's beautiful, it's lovely, modest, but we don't um, cut corners in terms of the quality we give the kids. And so that 
And the kids know that and they, and it reflects in their own actions. They go, okay, you really believe in us and you're giving us the tools to succeed. All right, let's go out and succeed. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And so we, we, I do see us, you know, building more schools, um, over time, but I do see powerful change makers coming out of the alumni, out of the ranks of the kids. Um, you know, modern society has shown, uh, entire corporations and, uh, you know, uh, governments are, are radically changed, uh, by key individuals, um, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, uh, I believe that our kids can be among uh, those change makers, and I very strongly believe they will be um, the good ones who will transform a society. Uh, well, Ajit, thank you so much for your time and uh, for for your work. This is this is great. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great talking to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to uh, Ajit. I appreciated having a conversation about one unique uh, approach to ending extreme poverty and one specific intervention. It's always good to take a close look at what works in the global fight against extreme poverty. Thank you very much to Ajit for taking the time to speak with me and we will see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.